heard this morning, we've strung some passages together uh, for you to follow along, kind of get the gist of what's going on. So if you'll, I want to encourage you to look to the screens this morning. Instead of your Bibles, we have them all broken apart. Um, So if you'll read along with me, God's word says this, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Chapter 16, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare... What they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Skipping to verse 13 in chapter 16. In the evening, the Lord also provided meat. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Moving now into chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. There there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. A lot going on there, right? 
Water, food, water. That's just kind of summarizing up the passage for you this morning. The Israelites have finally, if, you, if we're drawn into the story, the Israelites have finally been freed from captivity. We've been traveling with them, passing through the dry land in the midst of the unsurpassable waters of the Red Sea. The impossible task has been completed, right? The Red Sea was parted. The Israelites have been freed. God's people have been won from enslavement. They've been drawn out of that. With the act of the Almighty God, the captives have been set free and their enemies have been laid to waste. And they will now be brought into a season of what we would call testing. A season of testing. And it brings us to our main idea this morning, our guiding truth. Our redemption will lead to a time of testing by the Lord for our benefit. Our redemption will lead to a time of testing by the Lord for our benefit. You'll notice I have this word sanctification bracketed there. Would you guys say that with me this morning? All right, we're going to learn a little bit about what that word means. Uh, let's look to Exodus fifteen twenty-five. the last half of that verse. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he what? Tested them. He tested them. Often when we think of testing, we think in terms of pass or fail, right? We think about school or a trap set before someone with the intent to make them fail, to make them fall. This is not the way in which God's testing is meant to be implied within this passage. God does not desire for those he has redeemed to then be failures, does he? No. Rather, he tests them so that they may grow in the knowledge of his ways, his statutes, and maybe, I want you to hear this word, strengthened. They may be strengthened through the testing of the Lord for the mission that lie before them. God is preparing his people. God prepares us through testing. We can liken this point also to our own spiritual journey, Christian. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ... We are redeemed by his grace and mercy alone. This is known as, here's another word I want you to learn this morning, justification. Would you guys say justification with me? Good. You guys are at an A on your test right now. Justification is the act of God that declares us right. The prophet Zechariah grants us a vivid picture. Zechariah Chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Would you read chapter 3 this week in your devotions? It's such a beautiful chapter. Here's just this one piece here. It says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, hear this, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with fine garments. Did you hear that? Stripped of the filthy garments, given fine garments. We, when we are justified through the work of Christ, our filthy garments are ripped away, and we are then clothed in the finest garments, the garments of Jesus. Our justification is the removal of our filthy garments and the new gleaming clothes that he gives us. Not because of anything that we have done, but by the grace and mercy of Christ alone. By God's grace. 
And from that moment on, so that justifying time in our life where we are deemed right because of the righteousness of Jesus, we begin this process of testing, as we also see here, of the Israelites. Or growth in the Lord. When we hear that word testing, I want you to hear growth in the Lord. Again, we use that word sanctification. Growth in Christ's likeness. In essence, we're becoming more and more like the standing that we already have in Jesus. We're clothed in white garments, and our sanctification is the process of growing into being those. Becoming more and more like the standing that has already been won by Jesus. In the book of Exodus, Israel is tested after their redemption so that they may hold fast to the Lord and grow strong in his likeness, that they may walk in the light of their free standing. They are free people. They were once enslaved and they've been set free by God to walk in his ways. And so we draw three points of growth in the wilderness from this account. Point number one, growth in trusting that the Lord who redeems is the Lord who provides. Okay, the Lord who redeems is the Lord who provides. And you see another bracketed word there. We, we draw this concept of provision, God's provision, God providing. Now, going back into the wilderness with the Israelites, how easy is it for us, knowing the whole story of the Exodus, to jump to judging the Israelites? Right? How many times do we read through the passage and, and you hear them grumbling like, come on, guys, you've seen all God has done. You've seen everything that God has done. Why are you grumbling against the Lord? But have you ever been really, really thirsty before? Have you been like parched, completely parched in your throat, thirsty? And then imagine you come up to this pond and it's Looks like it's got water that you can drink, and you drink it, and you realize, this isn't good for me. This isn't. Can you imagine being that thirsty, finding water, there's hope there, and yet it doesn't satisfy your thirst? Desperate, right? Imagine now your kids are with you. You're concerned about your kids, and their throat is dry. And we know kids handle that kind of stuff so well, don't they? Can you imagine the panic and fear that begins to set in on this people? Again, it's easy for us to hover above the words and say, nah, I'd never do that. I don't know about you. I do that almost daily in my walk with the Lord, questioning and grumbling. As they wander in the wilderness with no water and no food. But have they not witnessed the power of the Almighty already? The parting of the seas? the defeat of their enemies? Absolutely, but right here and right now, their throats are screaming, I'm thirsty, give me water. Their stomachs roar with hunger. We, must also, we also have to admit that this episode in context gives us a view into the relationship between the Israelites and God. I want you to remember last week, hopefully you can remember where we left, down, left out on, on, on last week, the people of God were what? They were worshiping. They were singing. Because God had delivered them. They're worshiping. They're singing the song of Moses. And yet here in this, this next chapter, this next episode, here we are. Now the, the people of God go from worshiping to grumbling. 
to grumbling against Moses and Aaron and the Lord? Are their memories so short? I mean, in all honesty, do they really think that God, the God who has released them from captivity, has performed amazing signs and wonders, will let them just die of thirst and hunger out in the wilderness? The Lord is testing his people. He's growing them to rely on his provision. Bringing them to a point of desperation so that their, their only hope is to cry out to the Lord, please save me, please help me. Let's walk through a few ways that the Lord meets their needs. Verse 24 and 25, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Okay, now I know you may have been watching those History Channel shows that try to explain how some sort of mysterious wood could mix with this water and then turn it sweet, and so this can all be explained away by science. But the truth of the matter is, is that God here, through Moses, has what? He's performed a miracle. God has made water that was no good for drinking, now good for drinking to, to calm their thirst. This is a miraculous act of God. The Israelites finally find water. They come and drink it, but it's bitter. In other words, it's not good for drinking, but the Lord provides. And it's not because the Israelites are grateful and sincere. Grumbling is not a good term to use. They weren't just praying to God. They were speaking against him in a sense. They're grumbling. But in the midst of this, God is good to his people. He provides. He provides exactly what they need. Next, we find the Israelites hungry and in need of food. Man, I can relate to that right now in this moment. says in chapter 16, verse 12, and then skipping ahead to 17 and 18, says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then it goes on in verse 17, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Did you pick up on that? Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. The Lord provided for them exactly what they needed. And so the Lord now provides for their stomachs. Again, they gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. They had no lack. Moreover, within the whole account of the bread, the taste of it is noted. If you read uh, the whole passage, it said it tasted like honey. The bread tasted like honey. The bread was sweet for them to eat. I like honey. Do you guys like honey? Like those biscuits you get, you slather some butter all over those things. They got a little salt or something in them, and then you put the honey on top of it. Man, that's good. The bread was sweet for them to eat. 
And this is a foreshadowing of the inheritance of the land that they will receive. God's giving them a little bit of a taste of the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. It's not just a coincidence that the bread tastes this way. God's giving them a little something here to show them what he has in store for them. At times, church, we get the taste of that blessing that the Lord gives in his provision. A little bit of taste of heaven. We get that, this a privilege of gathering as, as the saints, as followers of Christ, to come together and gather and worship the Lord together is that taste of heaven. I get a little taste of heaven when I, I come back up the song before I come out here, and I stand back there, and I kneel on those stairs, and I pray, and I can, it's like a, like a megaphone, your guys' voices channel through that baptistry, through that wall there, and I can hear God's people singing, and I get a little taste of that honey, that blessing. And then God provides water again. Chapter 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Okay, this is unreal. Water from a rock? That doesn't, that doesn't just happen, does it? Anybody picked up that magic rock that you bust open and there's water inside there? Here God provides in an incredibly miraculous way. Water from a source that should never have water flowing from it. God providing for his people is a basic understanding of this. God's provision shows us this. He loves us. God loves you. He provides for you. In the ministry of Jesus, Jesus will, in a very direct way, connect this passage to his work in John chapter 6. He says this in Verse 35 of John chapter 6, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just prior to 35, in verse 32, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. This passage is a picture of the bread of life that we have that is Jesus Christ. Jesus connects himself as the greatest provision that the Lord gives. He provides life to those who were spiritually dead. See, in the wilderness... Apart from God's intervention, the Israelites are in the wilderness. Apart from God's intervention, the Israelites are nothing short of what? Being dead. If you don't drink water, what happens? You die. The Israelites were nothing short of of dead unless the Lord interceded and provided for them. They were completely dependent on him. A Christian, I want you to hear this. Apart from the saving work of Jesus, we are as good as dead. The Bible says we were dead in our transgressions and sin. Wandering hopeless in the wilderness. 
But Jesus tells us this in John chapter 6, verse 40, a little bit further on. He says these words, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. Through the bread of life, Jesus, we are not just sustained until our stomachs grumble again, right? Hunger happens all the time. But through Jesus, we are sustained and held for all of eternity and given life through him. Through what he provides for us. He is the bread of life. He's the well that never runs dry. We're secure in the bread of life, Jesus. Our second point, our second point this morning, we see this truth also drawn from the text, growth in trusting that the Lord who redeems is the Lord who gives rest. The Lord who redeems is the Lord who gives rest. And we get this idea of Sabbath. We're going to see this concept of Sabbath start to be interwoven throughout the story of the Exodus. If you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that Sabbath is a repetitive theme, a repetitive issue in the history of Israel. What was one of their main issues of neglect in their life? They neglected the Sabbath. To be clear, at this point in the story, the law has not yet been given. They are not at Mount Sinai. But I believe it's safe to conclude that there was already an idea of Sabbath established and that the Lord here is pointing towards the giving of the law on Sinai by commanding that the Israelites rest one day a week. God modeled this for us in the creation account. Not that God needs rest. He's fine. But that he models for us what we need. We need rest. Who's with me on that? Verse 23 of chapter 16. He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Simply put, we need rest. God knows that about us. This point is so applicable to our lives and our function as as human beings. I think at this point in time, we need to hear this because we are a busy people. We're kind of busy bodies. And even while we're at rest, we got our phone out. And if you're anything like me, you're scrolling through and looking at a bunch of stuff online that doesn't really matter and you don't care about, but it just pulls you in, doesn't it? Finger scrolling through the thing. Never resting. Our minds are always going. There's always something to do. Always somewhere to go. Always something I have to work on. And so we need to draw application from the Sabbath is so important to our life and our health, both physically and spiritually. Do you have a rhythm of physical rest in your life? Do you rest? 
And I want to push you to dig a little deeper. I'm not speaking of some sort of legalistic fence line where you have steps marked out on your head. Like I only could take 10 steps because anything beyond that's going to get my heart rate up and then I'm not resting anymore. Okay, we're not talking about that. Jesus said this of that kind of attitude. Jesus said Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Rather, do you have time to unwind and recover most importantly, meditate and worship the Lord and be rejuvenated, to be re-energized. And so I want to ask you, how do you observe Sabbath or rest in your life? Where do you rest and reflect upon God's goodness? I know for me, since we've moved here a few years ago into this area, one of my places of rest, I know this sounds crazy, is being out in the woods and hiking in the woods and seeing God's beautiful creation around me and hearing the birds sing and seeing animals crawling around and walking around. That reminds me of God's goodness and it rejuvenates me and helps me to meditate on, on the Lord's grace and mercy that he's given us in the creation around us. Some of you are like, man, I don't, I don't rest out there. That sounds horrible. It's humid and hot, and there's bugs. The key is, here's a piece of advice. This is for free. Make sure that somebody, when you're going through the woods, if you're going early in the morning, that there's somebody ahead of you that can take out all the spider webs. So how do you observe Sabbath in your life? Where do you rest and reflect upon God's goodness, or are you busy all the time? Listen, I'm going to try not to offend you, but you're just not that important. Some of us, I struggle with this. You're so important that you can't just unplug and rest. You're not that important. God is more important, and he has that for you. He is that powerful that you can take a day and rest. Isn't that amazing? That he sustains things enough That he has it that the world's not going to fall apart if you're not working seven days a week. Okay, God's good that way. We also cannot fail to see the impact of Jesus on the idea of rest or Sabbath. So we're focusing here on, on physical rest, which bleeds into spiritual rest, but our true spiritual rest comes through the work of Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath because he gives us rest in his righteousness. We have Sabbath through Jesus because we can rest in his perfect work that he has accomplished on our behalf. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I want to pause there. Who here is weary and burdened? Who's tired? Who's hurting? Exhausted? Jesus is talking to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And then he gives you this promise, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Some translations will say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Then he says again, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Some of you need to hear this today. You're battling with the Lord for rest. And I'm not talking about about physical rest. I'm talking about rest for your soul. Your soul and your spirit is burdened and it's heavy. Rest in the righteousness of Jesus and the work of Christ. Again, he said, you will find rest for your souls. Now, if you're not struggling right now, maybe life's going well for you. Awesome. God's blessing is just pouring out on you. There's not a heavy burden that you carry. Okay? Mark these notes with the star. File them away somewhere because then when you are weary and burdened, you can go back to them and say, okay, what did God's word have to say about that thing? Because I'm weary and burdened right now. But some of us are. We're weary in our spiritual journey. We've had some things in life that have hurt us. Maybe we're struggling with sin. Maybe we're struggling with emotional hurt and pain. Maybe we're struggling and we're grieved by decisions of other people that we've loved and poured into. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. The Bible promises that he will give us peace that passes understanding. That in the midst of the trial and the storm, that you can have a joy and a peace that is unshakable in Christ. That we can have true rest in Jesus. And so we can look at our past sin. Maybe a past decision that you make or a past sin that you have wrestled with is stirring back up within you. Maybe that bottle's calling out to you again and you shouldn't go there. Maybe that website's calling out to you again and you shouldn't go there. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. Run to Jesus, flee from sin. He will give you rest. Past sin, put it to rest. Emotional hurt and pain, maybe it's not sin that you've committed, but a sin that's been committed against you that has burdened you, that's heavy on you. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it feels like to be hurt. Run to the cross and lay that thing down and put it to rest at the foot of the cross. He has carried that burden for you. Maybe you're grieved over another person's decisions. You're heavy laden over your kids or your parents or a friend. Jesus knows how you feel about that too. Bring that grief and that suffering and lay it at the foot of the cross. Put it to rest. Savior has carried that for you. Jesus commands us in this passage you will find rest for your souls. Stop taking it back up again. Give it to Jesus. The Bible says he nailed it to the cross. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lastly, we have an eye to the future, the future promises. Number three, 
Growth in trusting that the Lord who redeems is the Lord who has a better future for you. The Lord who redeems is the Lord who has a better future for you. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What a thing to say. Notice the statement at the end of this section. You know why this part hit me? Because this is something I struggle with sometimes too. Sometimes we look back at the past and we think, that was better. We romanticize that era of life. Well, things were fine then. I wish I could go back there, do that thing. If this is not us sometimes, I'm not sure what is. Let's get real. Contentment is one of the most difficult things to combat in the Christian life, that we are present where we are at. Not wishing to go back. Am I content with where God has me right now? The Israelites at times yearned to go back to that place that enslaved them. They were quick to forget that they were the ones crying out to the Lord, weren't they? God save us, says the Lord heard their cries, and yet here they're saying, man, I wish we could go back to the meat pots and eat. How quickly they forget that they're crying out to the Lord. Why? Because their children were being murdered. They were burdened with work that was completely unbearable. They couldn't accomplish the task. They romanticized the past. It wasn't that bad. At least we had meat to eat to the full. (laughs) Yeah, right. You didn't even have time to eat because you were being beaten down. They couldn't even finish their work as slaves. But how often do we, I want to challenge us, how often do we yearn to go back because we have an eye like, well, that, uh, that thing might have been a little bit better. How often do we go back to that place where we were before God met us, before God drew us out, that place of sin? Instead of looking to the inheritance that God provides. Their eyes were off of the land flowing with milk and honey because they're in a difficult place, and now it's looking back over their shoulder and saying, man, I wish I was back over there. How often are we discontent with where God has us right now? Always a plan for the future, always yearning for tomorrow, but never living in the present. What's God doing for me right now in this wilderness? How is God growing me? 
Do we even have a deep understanding of the better future that lie before us? Or are we trying to create our own little... Are we troubled because we're trying to create our own little kingdom right here? Perhaps your present situation has you burdened. Perhaps you turn on the news. I caution against that. And the state of the world has you downcast. This is where you need to be reminded. You see, they had a taste of the honey, didn't they? They knew where they were going. God promised it time and time again. We know where we're headed. And yet we get so burdened where we're at right now. And so church, we got to remember where we're going. So that we can be content in the present. They work together. We've got to remember where we're headed. We have to remember this, that God has inaugurated a kingdom that will never end. In the ministry of Jesus, He has ushered in the kingdom of God. And remember, He has promised to bring it to completion. Heaven meets earth. Jesus gives us this promise in John chapter 14. I love that he begins with this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. Doesn't that apply? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Let us not in our present situations lose sight of the truth that God has already won the victory. He's won the battle. He's already there. We don't worship a defeated king. We worship a victorious, resurrected king of kings and lord of lords. A God who is mighty to save. A God who has conquered the grave. And he sets a beautiful vision for us to sustain us in our present circumstances. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Or look to the screens. This is a passage that I've read in a number of funerals that I've done over the past month. And it was fitting for this morning. It's a vision of what what is promised, what is to come. And I hope that it offers to you a peace that passes understanding. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful, right? I got to pause there. A few weeks ago, I did a, I did a wedding for Wes and Amy. Wes plays drums for us. And I'm standing up in the front and Wes is, is next to me. He's on my left. And his bride came out of the back and he started shaking. And I saw that tear. Why? Because she was beautiful. 
Take yourself into the story. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I can't think of a day. My wife is beautiful, but man, on our wedding day, when she came out all dressed in white and her hair was all done up and the makeup was on, beautiful. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is good news right there. And then he promises us this. Hear this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's the good news. Death shall be no more. Is anybody tired of death? I am. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. The Bible promises a better future that we're heading towards. Circling back to our main idea. A redemption will lead to a time of testing by the Lord, sanctification for our benefit. When you go through struggle, it's to benefit you spiritually. God's growing you. It's because he loves you. Are you actively seeking the Lord to grow in the areas of trusting God and providing for your every need? Do you trust his provision for you, both physical and spiritual? Is Jesus enough? Do you trust in the rest of God? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross? And do you trust that God has a better future for you? Do you trust that Jesus is coming back? I do. Are you content with where the Lord has you right here and right now, being mindful, being content here, but being mindful of the promise of Jesus' near return? 